Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back uh, every Sunday night between 7 and 8 p.m. Your health first is where you need to be to become better consumers of health care. And on the line tonight, Anahad O'Connor, no stranger to the program, New York Times writer and uh, one of my favorite people when I look at the New York Times. Anahad, thanks for coming on again tonight. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Always great to be on. Well, you know, you uh, have, have written a number uh, I mean, I, I've always liked what you have written, but uh, the last, you know, month or so, there have been a couple of articles that you've written that really have caught my eye. But before we get into the details of the the articles, tell everybody if they haven't heard you before, how long have you been with the Times, and how did you really get into writing about health and wellness for the uh, for the New York Times? Yeah, so I have been writing for the Times since uh, 2003. So it's been some time now. And I started off as a general science and health reporter covering a variety of issues. And I have always had an interest in health and nutrition in particular because Mm -hmm. it was a big um, interest and topic in my household growing up. My parents were vegetarians. They were into using supplements and juicing. They were sort of, uh, I guess you could say, health nuts. And right. so, you know, they raised me as a vegetarian, and that just made me very, um, you know, conscious of, of what I eat. And I'm no longer a vegetarian. Okay. Um, but it was something where I was always just sort of brought up thinking about nutrition. So once I got to the Times and I was writing about science and health, I sort of eventually zeroed in more and more, and more on covering health and wellness and really looking at um, – you know, these sort of lifestyle issues, obesity, chronic disease, right. um, diabetes, heart disease, and the impact of lifestyle and nutrition and exercise um, and ways that you can prevent some of these conditions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, uh, you know, what, what we're seeing every day. Now, w- with with regard to the amount of writing that you have to do at the Times, do you uh, I don't want to say so much in your contract, but is there an understanding that you're going to uh, have a completed article once a week, three times a month? How how do you work with the editors, and what do they expect from someone like you? Yeah, so one of the things that I like about this job, you know, covering health for the Times, <clears throat> is that I don't have a quota uh-huh. when it comes to writing articles. Um, my editors and our readers, really, are more interested in quality rather than quantity. Uh, I think you see a, a lot of news outlets that are 
under a lot of pressure to you know publish lots of health stories uh, every single day, mm-hmm. and so they're constantly covering you know every you know drip or drop of um, uh, you know health research that comes right. out, and I think that is one of the reasons why there can be a lot of whiplash among the public. You know, one day a study says one thing, the next day study says something else uh, about what foods you should be eating. Um, I try to focus on either writing about um, big, important, randomized, controlled um, trials, right. which are mo- the most scientifically rigorous, and covering topics where I'm able to take a step back and sort of look at the body of literature as a whole so that we can maybe in some cases help to um, help people sort out their confusion about nutrition and health, which can be, you know, it can be very... Oh, it's daunting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really is amazing. Now, when you have something that looks like an editor's meeting or sort of a topic meeting, are there topics that editors will throw out there and and tell you or, you, you know, your colleagues on the Times that, boy, we're getting a lot of traction on a certain topic and I had why don't you go ahead and look into that do you do you um you know is there a lot of uh feedback from all of the online comments and does that steer a topic and then ultimately a, a feature uh sometimes you know if we see that an article is drawing a lot of um both popular or that a topic is drawing a lot of both popular and scientific interest, then that's something where we may say, you know, we should, you know, we should, we should do a story on this, um, you know, highlighting that this is right. uh, a topic that's gaining a lot of uh, traction. And, you know, most importantly, talking to experts, looking at the research, and trying to give uh, readers, you know, an authoritative take on it, you know, uh, trying to explain, you know, what the evidence is. Right. For, you know, whatever the, the question is, uh, one way or the other. Um, so that, is, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll, you know, riff on something that's, you know, sort of a popular topic. A lot of times, you know, for myself, I uh-huh. tend to follow what's being published in the top medical journals, because that's where you find, you know, um, you know, a lot of the latest scientific evidence. Exactly. Um, but I do also look at what, you know, questions readers are sending. And then we even have a... A, a, a section, a recurrent column called "Ask Well" you know, for our well, our wellness blog, where people can send in questions, and then we'll, you know, just devote a column to answering a question where we interview experts and seek out the studies and you know uh, what they say about it. Yeah, great. And la- last question before we dive into the articles: when, when uh, you write an article and and there are these uh, comments, and and there are some articles that are just flooded, flooded with responses. Uh, do, do you, as the author, do you go in and, and scroll down and, and look at these, or do you have somebody on the staff that sort of edits it down and gives you a summary? How, how does that work? Uh, so usually um, it depends on the topic, but you know, if it's an article that's gaining a lot of uh, traction and attention, I will go and, and scroll and see what the top comments are, what, you know, what people are saying about it, but I also get a lot of um, messages from people directly because people can click on my byline online, and uh-huh. that will allow them to email me directly. So I get a lot of emails from people that way. Yeah. Yeah. It must also, because I look through these, and if it's even 
you know, the, the most mundane topic, innocent, uh, what people write in the comments, you have to look and you're like, boy, oh boy, what planet are these people coming from? That must drive you a <laughs> little, right? I mean, come on, you're being polite tonight, but there, there's some crazy people out there that write these comments. Absolutely. Uh, and I've been <laughs> yeah. for a number of years, ever since I started writing for the Times. Um, you know, I think some of it is, uh, you know, you have to realize that it's a self-selecting group you know, that tends to right. publish comments that people who, you know, register and then go to the trouble of right. writing a comment. And I think it's sort of the same issue as, you know, Yelp. A lot of times if you go to a restaurant and you have a nice meal and you think, oh, that was pretty good. That was, that was great. I'm very satisfied and happy. You go home and, you know, you go back to the restaurant the next week, but you don't necessarily go on Yelp and write. Right. That was an amazing experience. But if you go to a restaurant and you have a you know, uh, an unusual or a bad experience. Or you right. Have, like, really you get food poisoning. Feeling. You're more motivated. Yeah, you're more motivated to go, um, you know, on Yelp and, and write about it and explain why you're upset about oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so I think you have to look at it as it's, it's, it's uh, you know, self-selecting uh, sort of. Yeah. It's not a true random right. sample. But, yeah, there are people who... Um, who write in with a lot of passionate yeah. comments? And and with that with that said, let's let's get into the to the first article I want to talk about tonight, and it's uh, one you did um, uh, earlier in the month in July. Supplements and diet for heart health show limited proof of benefit, and a lot of people that probably rocked their world. Uh, and so, give me the um, elevator pitch on what what this article was all about. Yeah, so this was a really fascinating article. Um, well, the article was about a study that was pretty fascinating. It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, one of the leading uh, oh, yeah. medical journals in the world. And the idea behind the article was, you know, this group of researchers that analyzes uh, the scientific evidence for different interventions, um, cardiovascular interventions, decided let's look and see what the evidence says about dietary supplements and dietary interventions for, um, for heart disease. Uh-huh. And so they focused, um, you know, they called all of the randomized controlled trials on dietary supplements and on diet interventions for heart health. And essentially what they found was that there was really uh, no good evidence for any of the popular supplements that, you know, that, that they reviewed. There was no real scientific evidence that, dietary supplements are going to benefit your cardiovascular your heart health. And, and, and the study looked at 16 popular supplements. Everybody knows what they are. And then eight different diets. And so this, this really sort of, in a nice way, slammed the people taking supplements and the people following certain diets. Yeah, it was fascinating. So they, you know, they found that there were a few things that looked beneficial, but they all had important caveats. So with um, dietary supplements, they found that uh, there was some evidence that um, folic acid Mm -hmm. could be protective for heart health, but then they, you know, pointed out that most of the research came from countries like China, where the diet is deficient in folic acid, and so if you are eating a deficient, a diet that's deficient in folic acid and you take a folic acid supplement... Um, it makes sense to be protective, whereas in America, 
um, you know, we eat so many foods that are already right. um, fortified with folic acid. So it's not clear that taking folic acid on top of that is going to make any difference. Um, the other thing they found was that uh, fish oil, um, omega-3 fatty acids, right. looked protective, but the evidence was not particularly strong. There was a slight signal of benefit, but not enough to say, you know, this is conclusive. Uh, and then they also found evidence of harm. So they found that taking calcium uh, with vitamin D, which uh, has been you know, a pretty popular regimen, they found that that could actually increase the risk of stroke. And it's not entirely clear why, but it seems like part of the reason is that this can increase uh, blood clotting and uh, calcification of the arteries. You know, now, do, do you think with this, and, and, and I read the article in Annals, I, I get it, it's, it's on my subscription list, and mm-hmm. I, I just wonder if the public is going to buy the conclusions here, uh, because I'm, I'm sure you're well aware there are people that, um, you know, the, uh, as long as the sun is up, they're going to believe in these supplements and it's a it's a billion dollar industry what do you think this is something that may move the needle on this um you know i tend to agree with you i think for some people who are unsure and who you know google whether they should be taking uh certain supplements they may come across this information and be swayed but there are a lot of people who you know live and die by their supplement right. regimens and people are pretty passionate about their dietary supplements more than uh, at least one in two Americans you know, uh, uses dietary supplements. As you said, it's a multi-billion dollar right. industry. And uh, this is an issue where I get a lot of emails um, in the past where I've you know, written articles examining you know, the scientific evidence on supplements and people will write in and, and say, you know, this is nonsense. You know, are you taking money from the drug industry? Right, of course <laughs> you are. It's all a conspiracy <laughs> that it's just the pharmaceutical industry uh, trying to trash, you know, their competitors, and they think of supplements as as, as natural. Um, but, yeah, so I'm not sure if it'll move the needle, but, you know, these scientists, you know, took a pretty objective look at the scientific evidence, and they found that it was lacking, at least when it came to supplements for heart health. Right. And and I think that the, the benefit of something like this and, and trying to move the needle, it's I'm not naive that this is, uh, you know, trying to move uh, a pyramid uh, uh, by hand. But I, I, I believe that this article and, and all of the, the discussion about it would be best suited for when you go to your physician and you're on a shopping bag full of supplements, and and the doctor can now talk to you to say, you know what, Bob, these probably are not going to help you. They probably may hurt you. And for these reasons, let's stop it. And I think then people will pretty much uh, follow that lead. But I think it's when people are not getting uh, good communication with their doctors that they go off the grid and start buying all this stuff. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, maybe that is something that will move the needle. You know, doctors will see this and have these discussions with their patients. Um, I know in the past it was the case, and you could probably speak more to this, that, um, you know, when doctors see patients, they would ask them, you know, what medications they're taking and do a history, and most of the time would not even ask 
um, what supplements they're taking. Exactly. It's been a push to get doctors to, to ask patients what uh, what medications are you taking and what supplements are you taking because, you know, these are bioactive substances that can, um, you know, have side effects. Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I, I mean, probably a week does not go by that a patient comes and we ask about that, and, and uh, of course, they're taking something. But uh, what they always say is, but it's natural. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where, uh, as I probably told you before, I, I say, look, a rattlesnake is natural, too, but you don't want that running around mm. the, the back yeah, of your car. Yeah, cyanide is natural. No, absolutely. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Anna Head O'Connor with the New York Times. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Don't forget, go to drjogalati.com. We'll be right back after this break. Well, you've made it halfway through this week's podcast episode. Thanks very much for tuning in this week. I'm Dr. Joe Galati, and it's always a pleasure having our old regular listeners tuning into the podcast or... If you're new to our podcast, thank you very much. Now, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with me, the best place to go is drjoegalati.com. Now, how do you spell Galati? G-A-L-A-T-I. That is a good old Sicilian name. drjoegalati.com. And that's where you could find out about our practice, Liver Specialists of Texas, where we take care of everything liver-related. That includes fatty liver, hepatitis C, cirrhosis, alcoholic liver disease, liver transplantation, liver cancer, you name it. If it's got anything to do with the liver, we will see it, along with any digestive issues of your stomach or your colon or colon cancer screening with a colonoscopy. Our website for our radio program, Your Health First, is there. And, of course, our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube sites are all there. Now, a question that comes up a fair amount of time is, hey, I live in Tucson, Arizona. How am I going to go see Dr. Galati in Houston, Texas? Well, with the World Wide Web, Internet, video connection, we're able to do video conferencing second opinions. So don't let your location be an obstacle to getting your chart evaluated by me for a second opinion. Contact me through the website and we're able to get you hooked up. Lastly, if you want me to come speak to your group, your company, your organization, just reach out, drjoegalati.com. I'm happy to come out and talk to anybody. Of course, there are details on how this happened, so take a look at the website. So let me get you back to the second half of the podcast. Thanks very much. And don't forget, I really do enjoy hearing from our followers and our listeners. I really do gain a lot of information from all of you, a different perspective that maybe I am not thinking about. So without further ado, here is rest of this week's podcast. Take it easy. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Joe Galati on the line is Anna Hat O'Connor from 
The New York Times. Well, the other the other yeah. fascinating article that you wrote, and for those just tuning in, we're with Anna Head O'Connor with the New York Times. Um, cutting a um, a mere th- I'm going to say a mere 300 calories, though mm. I think you found that it wasn't that easy to cut 300 calories. <laughs> shows a health benefit, and I think the overarching message here for everybody is that if you eat less you will probably do better from a health and wellness standpoint. So what uh, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so this was a fascinating um, set of research here. Uh, it was based, uh, so I wrote about you know these findings that came out of the calorie trial. Right, um, and I love that name, term. calorie trial. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the fun things about writing about um, yeah. science. You find that a lot of researchers come up with very creative acronyms for the trials. Clinical trials that they're leading, like Mr. Fit and Calorie, and, yeah. you know, all these cool, catchy uh, titles for the trials. But yeah, so this one, um, the idea behind it, uh, so it's a long term study, and the idea behind it was that, you know, there's pretty much um, one uh, very reliable way to extend lifespan in mice and other animals uh, in labs, and that's to restrict the amount of calories they consume. If you reduce the amount of calories they consume, um, or, or they feed them by between 10 and 40%. It's a, been shown to be a fairly consistent way to extend their lifespan. And mm-hmm. so the idea behind the study was, you know, let's see if we can get um, a bunch of adults to restrict their caloric intake and see if it has any impact on their uh, metabolic health. And in this study, um, it was interesting because, you know, most studies that look at caloric restriction involve people who are overweight or obese. Right. But the researchers in this case said we don't want to do that because we're not studying weight loss per se. We're just looking to see if there's something about uh, reducing food intake that can benefit even lean, uh, uh-huh. relatively healthy people. So they sought out, you know, uh, lean, relatively lean, healthy adults or, or people who are, you know, maybe slightly overweight, a few pounds, but not much more. It was really just to get a uh, a, a group of people that were sort of your average, relatively healthy-ish adults, uh-huh. <clears throat> and they then assigned them to restrict their calorie intake by 25%. Um, and it turned out that uh, that was kind of hard for people to do. Right. So some people were in the study were able to restrict their calories by 25%, but most were not. And on average, they found that people were able to remove or eliminate about 12% of their total calories, which for the average person is about 300 calories a day. And that's uh, the amount in a large bagel, uh, you know, a few cookies, or, you know, if you're someone who goes to Starbucks like I do, that would be essentially uh, equivalent to a mocha frappuccino, a tall mocha frappuccino. (laughs) God. And and Uh, the amazing thing is the the people, not too much of a a surprise, They, they lost weight. They had improvement in their cholesterol and blood pressure and dropped about 16 pounds. And so, uh, you know, one would think that, gee, if you lost weight, all of these other metabolic parameters should get better. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, these people did lose weight and they saw a lot of improvements in pretty much every metabolic marker that was measured. You know, their, their HDL cholesterol, their LDL their blood sugar, their insulin levels, uh, you know, their waist circumference. Um, and, you know, like you said, because 
they lost weight, you know, that's not surprising. You tend to see when, when people lose weight that these uh, markers improve. But the extent to which these markers improved, uh, these metabolic markers uh, improved, was much greater than you would have predicted by their weight loss alone. Right. So that suggested to the researchers that the weight loss was part of it, but there was more to it. It was something else in addition to the weight loss that yeah. caused you know, yeah. uh, these metabolic markers to, to move so far in the right direction. Yeah, pro- probably, um, you know, levels of inflammation and uh, insulin levels and things like that are, are, uh, are down. And I, I remember a study uh, back to when I was in medical school. Uh, it was sort of a part nutrition, part epidemiology, where they looked at some very, very poor uh, areas of Africa where there was basically starvation going on, there was no cancer in this population. And and they felt uh-huh. that starvation created a, a completely different environment in the body for the cancer cells not to survive. Uh, and that's a little bit of an extreme thing to say, okay, let's starve the world and we'll, we'll cure cancer. But I think this is sort of an extension of what we're seeing here. Cut the calories, it, it, it settles you down metabolically, and a lot of these things uh, uh, improve. Now, the, the last part to yeah. really comment well, on— I, One thing before, yeah. if you don't mind, I, sure. I think you raised such a great point. And there are now um, clinical trials, small clinical trials, looking at um, you know, putting people who have cancer and who are undergoing chemotherapy on um, fasting yeah. protocol. So Walter Longo at the uh, USC— you know, he's studying, um, I think it's a group of patients with prostate cancer and a couple other cancers where the people are not at risk of uh, significant weight loss. Um, he's you know, putting these patients on fasting regimens uh, once a month to see if that has any impact on their cancer outcomes because, you know, as you said, there's research suggesting that uh, starvation can have an impact on on, uh, cancer. Oh yeah, no. I think I think this is a whole new era of of research waiting to uh, to happen. Now, the last the last point before we we've got to close up for tonight is the idea that they actually uh, insinuated that this was sort of tough to do to cut out these three hundred calories. Now, both as author of this article and and sort of just. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll call you a pseudo health nut. I, I, you know, I know you. You're, you're very smart about things. Where, where what do you take of this? That uh, you know, the average healthy thirty year old may actually have a big challenge cutting out three hundred calories. What, what's your take? Well, I think it can be hard, uh, depending on how you approach it. If you say, "Well, I, you know, I eat you know a certain amount of calories each day, and I've got to you know trim." this amount, you know, I normally like to have a bag of potato chips for lunch, but I'm going to cut that out. I normally like to have chocolate chip, chip cookies, but I, I can't eat those anymore. Uh, if you, for a lot of people, you know, just try to flash 300 calories off the top of your diet, um, it might be hard to sustain if you lose out on some of the enjoyment. But I think there's an easier way to do it. Uh-huh. And I had this discussion with the lead author of the study, um, you know, who is a cardiologist who sees patients in the clinic. And I think one way to do that is um, with, with another uh, regimen that I've written about called time-restricted eating, 
Um, you know, this is basically a form of, I'd say a mild form of fasting where you're just sort of restricting um, the time window during the day uh, in which you eat because studies have shown that, uh, you know, when they track Americans and ask them to, you know, record, you know, basically every bite of food that they consume throughout the day, they find that most people are consuming calories from the moment they wake up, yeah. you know, when they have a cup of coffee with milk or a little sugar or tea or they grab a bite of a cookie or something or uh, to the moment that they pretty much go to sleep where right. they eat dinner and then, you know, they're having an after-dinner snack or a glass of wine or um, they found that Americans on average are eating about about 18 hours a day. Right. Um, and so they're not really giving their bodies much time to Di- properly digest the food, you know, they're not really giving their digestive org- uh, organs a break, uh, and we know that um, every organ in the body operates on a circadian rhythm, um, just like our brain. Right. You know, if we are if we are awake all day, then you know we experience brain fog and other um, you know symptoms of you know of, of disrupting our circadian rhythms. And the same you know happens with our organs, where our bodies are sort of primed to take in food earlier in the day and then give our, you know, uh, bodies a break at night. And so I think one way to easily reduce 300 calories a night or a day is to um, do some sort of time-restricted eating regimen, and that can be as simple as just eating dinner and then not having any snacks afterward. And I used to be someone who, you know, I'm a big snacker. Uh I like to eat a lot of small meals throughout the day, and then I would eat dinner and then you know, I'd go in the kitchen and grab a little something, right? Uh, some some nuts or you know, whatever was at my fingertips, and I sort of trained myself to say, okay, I'm going to eat dinner, and then I'm not going to eat again until uh, the next morning. Um, and I have just I wasn't trying to, but I ended up losing a little bit of weight, and I ended up I think just reducing my caloric intake because I'm not constantly eating throughout the day. And so I think that's one way to do it is to, you know, just, you know, um, have your breakfast, have your lunch, maybe a snack, your dinner, and then the kitchen is closed. Right. And, and, you and, and just eliminate, a, a, you know, probably 300 calories right there. Yeah. And, and extraneous snacks. Yeah. And, and, and I think the, 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 the top line here is you, you need that, that discipline and all too often, uh, these kind of problems are thrown on you when you develop diabetes, heart disease, you have a heart attack or something like that. So I know the message that you're always putting out there and one that uh, that I try and, you know, I, I feel like we work together on this with so many other people. Act now. Make the, make the adjustments now before it is too late. Well, Anahan, as always, gosh, we could we could have you on for the whole hour. Thanks so much for taking the time tonight. I am sure you've got... Um, Several more articles we need to, to talk at another time, but thanks very much for coming mm-hmm. on. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk. Love uh, the show. All right, Anna Head. All right, it is always great having Anna Head on. Don't forget, go to the NewYorkTimes.com, the Well column, where all of the health and wellness articles are posted, and you could find Anna Head O'Connor and all of his awesome articles. Final segment coming up. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Don't forget, go to drjogalati.com for information about the program, sign up for our newsletter, and send me an email. 
Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.